0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Modern atheism is linked maybe to the most famous atheist, and that's Friedrich Nietzsche. And he tells of the rise in a kind of prophetic way, the rise of modern secularism, the emptying out of the churches in Europe, and the failure of modern forms of thought. And Nietzsche is making a pronouncement about human philosophy, that is that it's failed, and I think we can agree with him in this, that human wisdom he declares is empty, and we can agree with that. But ironically, Nietzsche pictures a basic trust in human wisdom as happening due to Christianity. He equates Christianity with the God of the philosophers and philosophic thought and presumes that Christianity builds upon this philosophic thought. I think that's a mistake. And this is the way that he understands the Apostle Paul. He gives us a misreading of Paul, but ironically, it is the misreading by which we're surrounded, and especially in his Lutheran Germany, he was surrounded. But it pictures Paul's motives in turning to Jesus as the result of his problem with the law, a kind of what Nietzsche calls resentment, which needed relief you know, from the crushing demands of the law. And so Paul projects this on, onto God, Nietzsche says, and pictures Jesus as accomplishing atonement from the law due to his execution. And so Nietzsche is a, a kind of telling indictment. He says, okay, this is our problem, that this understanding of Christianity, this understanding of Paul. And what I'm saying is I think that he's correct. Not in his reading of Paul, but in this misunderstood Christianity, this misunderstood reading. Paul, in this understanding, suffers from an introspective conscience in which he recognizes God's righteousness. He recognizes the heavy requirement of the law and then his incapacity to keep the law. And this gives rise to his sense of wrong and his guilty conscience. He meets Christ, you know, and he understands that deliverance is now provided from the requirement of the law, that Christ has met these requirements. I'm giving you the standard reading, and I'm saying this standard reading, I think, is quite mistaken. He says that Christ has paid the penalty and grace is now available in place of wrath and punishment. In other words, the story of Paul's conversion is like Luther's, or more accurately, Luther's conversion, and theology becomes the lens for a revisionist understanding of Paul's conversion. Because Luther, you know, he suffered guilt, he beat himself, and then he comes to an understanding that Christ relieves him of that. And so we tend to look at Paul through that Lutheran understanding. And it's necessary to narrate his story in this way. You know, you know God, you know the law and you, the only thing you you have a kind of incapacity. And you narrate it this way as it links a notion of judgment, justification, And all of this depends upon a universal access to basic knowledge of God through nature or through being a Jew, through the law, you know, the law written on the heart or given to Moses. This basic knowledge is the basis for both condemnation and what drives us to Christ. Wrongly understood. That realization of law and guilt serves as an unchanging universal foundation in this understanding. And the main problem then is a kind of incapacity of the will and this is resolved in Christ. That's pretty standard reading of a kind of contractual Christianity. But isn't Nietzsche correct that this puts on display a kind of resentment against God and the law? And isn't the true depiction of Paul in fact precisely the opposite of that? And that's where we're about to read in Philippians, that is the presumed access to a right understanding in human conscience that was supposedly present in Luther and denied by Nietzsche, I think it's also denied by Paul. Paul's going to say, I was completely deceived. Paul, along with Nietzsche, or Nietzsche along with Paul, does not describe himself as suffering from a guilty conscience but he presumes he was completely guilt free so philippians 3 2 to 7 let's read here beware the dogs beware of the evil workers beware of the false circumcision for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So contrary to the typical depiction, oh, Paul is weighed down by his guilt as a Pharisee under the law. Paul says, I wasn't feeling guilty. In fact, he said, I felt perfectly righteous. He narrates his pre-Christian understanding as guilt-free. He says, I was without blemish. I was without fault in regard to the law and he describes that he considered himself righteous, zealous beyond his peers, and bearing the highest qualifications, the impeccable credentials, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That is, he's blameless in his own eyes in regard to the law. We've got Christianity wrong. And we've got Paul wrong. Paul is not suffering from any guilt as a Pharisee. No introspective, guilt stricken conscience here at all. No notion of a failed works righteousness. Oh, you know, we say, oh, he was trying to be good, but he then realized I can't be good and he felt guilty. It's not here. In fact, even the notion of an individually conditioned salvation, you know, his Jewishness, his descent from Benjamin, his thorough Hebrewishness, these are not things he achieved. These are things that were given to him. These are not earned merits in which he exercised or failed to exercise his will but they are corporate ethnic markers. That is, he's a Jew, and that means he's saved, and he was guilt-free. His break from the Jewish notion of salvation is not because he felt it was inadequate as a Jew. He was completely happy with his Judaism and with himself, and that's why he was a persecutor of the church. It was perfectly adequate, more than adequate, He excelled in his pre-Christian self-understanding. What is his conversion then? Paul depicts a radical break with his former knowing and his former identity. He says here, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. This is verse 7 and 8. And I have count them as garbage. I consider them as rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. There is no continuum of knowing, no philosophy, no religion, no building of the law on the heart, no guilt, no relief. Paul is describing an apocalyptic a holistic change in which one world is displaced by another, in which one identity is completely displaced by another. A deceived understanding, in which he was guilt-free, is displaced. There is no ethical, philosophical continuity based on the the law leading to a guilty conscience. Paul does not begin from what he knew as a Jew or his status as a Jew. He does not expect any Gentile to begin on what they knew to arrive at an understanding of Christ. It's a completely different world. You exchange one world for another world. Profit and loss are changed up. In the economy of salvation. The previous system, he says, is, and he uses actually the art, we have a polite translation here, uses garbage. It's actually the word excremental. In comparison, I have suffered the loss of all things so that I may gain Christ. Whatever he knew previously has been displaced, it's not been built upon. Knowing Christ is completely different. His viewpoint, his knowledge, his ethical understanding, his philosophical understanding, has been turned inside out as the former system has been relinquished, which was to his advantage in every way. He was a Pharisee, you know, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul is describing a sudden change. He's not describing progressive realization. He's not describing a slow conversion. But he's juxtaposing two worlds. Two ways of knowing. Two modes of doing identity. His former glory is now his shame. And his former sense of goodness, his zeal, is evil. Right? He says, I was without guilt. But of course he's also going to say, and I was the chief of sinners in my guilt sense of good conscience. It's the zeal that he has for the law that caused him to arrest and kill Christians. What he thought was good was evil. And the very thing he would have counted as a basic part of his righteousness makes him the chief of sinners in persecuting the church. This former knowing was deceived, misplaced, and gave rise to evil. The Jew is at no advantage, Paul says. And though Paul speaks of the Jew having a knowledge of God, it is a misguided knowledge. You cannot get to the one by clinging to the other. The picture is not one of rightly knowing the law, failing to keep it, feeling guilty, and realizing that Christ accomplishes what we could not. That's our usual narrative of Christianity. Far from this usual narrative, Paul is completely positive in his Jewishness, blameless in regards to the law, glorying in his status, his accomplishments, all of which describe what he characterizes as knowing according to the flesh. The negative evaluation of his former condition only arises when he becomes a Christian, right? In retrospect, having known Christ, What's the conclusion here? There is no available light outside of Christ. There is no natural knowledge. There is no sense of wrong, even given the special revelation to Israel, by which Paul might be judged. In his own pre-Christian judgment, he is without external transgression. And Paul's problem is not that he discovered himself guilty and in need of deliverance from God's wrath. Paul discovers he's deceived. He was deceived in regard to his former manner of life. This is the significance of Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul doesn't encounter Jesus and say, Oh, here is the one who can relieve my guilty conscience. He encounters Jesus and he says, Oh, no, I've been completely wrong about everything. What is the basis of judgment, you know, if not universal law? And what is the nature of salvation if not deliverance from the law? If Paul, by his own description, has ascended to the Jewish theological heights and judged himself flawless in regard to the law, and by the same token, he's the chief of sinners, It turns out the human condition is much worse than commonly reported. One can be evil in good conscience. And precisely by means of a zealously clear conscience, a strong religious belief, you can be the chief of sinners. Right? Religion, law, temple, sacrifice even of a kind prescribed by God, can be so misconstrued as to promote evil. And ultimately, then, what is at stake in the two ways of narrating Paul's story is two Christianities, two theologies, two understandings of salvation surrounding these different versions. The very meaning of good and evil is at stake in the two versions of Christianity. In what we might call contractual theology. Oh, Jesus died to pay the penalty of the law. This is evangelicalism. This is a good portion of Roman Catholicism. In this understanding, there's a naturally given recognition of good and evil. One has light available through the law, through ethics, through the conscience. There is a natural understanding of God. God has revealed himself as creator, as omnipotent. And there is a given notion of law and the universal recognition of an incapacity to keep the law. This is the narration wrongly given of the problem, the predicament, that Jesus saves us from. Christ does not provide capacity of the will where there's an incapacity. But in an apocalyptic understanding, there is recreation. There is rebirth. There is resurrection. There is a founding of a new order of humanity. There is the first Adam, old humanity, and there is the second Adam, new humanity. The failure of humanity in the first Adam is total. It has cosmic consequences in the reign of death, the law of sin and death, and the subjection of creation to futility. And the specific nature of this futility, this is the word that Paul uses in Romans 8, is that a lie, a deception, reigns in place of the truth. The truth of Christ is not additional information to what we already have, but it's the counter to a lie, an overcoming of prevailing darkness, a defeat of the reign of death. And so the difference between the two versions of Paul's conversion, the two versions of Christianity, is it the case that what is taken to be good is actually evil, a total incapacity of discernment, Or is it simply that good and evil are known quantities, and our primary problem is, well, we know what to do, we just don't have the will to do it. There is no part of the interpretive frame which is not affected by how you answer that question. Are humans individualistic, rational? Are we in the possession of the basic truth of God, of ethics, apart from Christ? Paul's characteristic way of describing Gentiles is those who do not know God. He engages what little knowledge he finds. You know, on the Areopagus, I see that there is an idol with this inscription, to the unknown God. And he proclaims to them the the God by which they themselves say they don't know. And Paul says, that's right, you don't know him. God is unknown because people were slaves, quoting here from Galatians, to those which by nature are no gods. They have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, Paul says, not because they have applied themselves to their philosophical studies or their natural understanding, but because they have been delivered from slavery to the law of sin and death. Paul depicts human wisdom as of no help in knowing God, and perhaps is precisely the obstacle to knowing God. If you cling to human wisdom, you cling to human religion, if you cling to the world through its wisdom, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.21, well, then you did not come to know God. And on the basis of this same wisdom, he judges the true revelation as deliverance from foolishness. That is, you judge the cross of Christ as foolishness on the basis of human wisdom. The Greeks think the cross is foolishness. This deliverance is not conditioned on their knowing, but on Paul says God knowing them. The shift is from belief in what is not God, but a dead inanimate object, that is, their worshiping idols, to the living God. So the passage is from out of a satanic deception, and is not passage from an incapacity of the will. And this is the passage in Romans 7, Paul's depiction of his own story, like Adam's, of his interior human predicament. I think we can misread this. Paul is not talking about a guilty conscience in Romans 7. But this is his retrospective insight. He's a Christian, and he's looking back on the truth of who he was. The law, you know, maybe it was the law of Sinai, maybe it was the prohibition in Eden, through the deception of sin becomes another law, the law of sin and death. But this law is not available to the understanding of conscience. You know, this is Jiminy Cricket. Let your conscience be your guide. Can your conscience be your guide apart from Christ? Paul says no. It is only as a Christian that Paul can look back on his former life and realize the Mosaic law, the prohibition in Eden, because of sin's deceit, is twisted. Our consciences are twisted. This commandment, which was to result in life, Paul says, proved death to me. The prohibition and the Mosaic law in reception and practice, they become the law of sin and death. That's Paul's picture in Philippians. What was good, the temple, the the law, being a Hebrew, was turned into evil. It's become the law of sin and death. And so the true knowledge of God, it does not reside in the law. This is not the truth, but the lie, which justification theory or contractual theology seems to promote. In an evangelicalism says, okay, our, our main problem is with the law. We broke the law, and now Jesus makes it okay. That's not what Paul's saying. We have a sin problem we have a problem of deception. Paul depicts the work of Christ in the resurrection as deliverance from the law of sin and death by which we are deceived. This is not God's law, but it's the deceived human orientation to the law. The shift is more radical, it's more all-inclusive than we might have imagined in these two ways of knowing, in these two laws, in the two worlds They do not intersect. Paul as a Pharisee, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, he could not have understood what he understands in Christ. He does not get to point A by passing through point B. He encounters Christ. One is either found in Adam or in Christ. And to be found in the first is not an aid, but an obstacle to be overcome. Paul's picture is that Adam instituted the age in which sin and death rule and Christ is inaugurating a new age. Not as Nietzsche depicts Christianity, as life denying. Paul depicts the enduring goodness of the world, the material world, and God's purposes. There's a transformation of the cosmic order. How are you saved? Through resurrection of the body? Wherefore, Friedrich Nietzsche, the struggle is all there is forever. For Paul, to die to sin is to break the rule and power of sin and to enter into the reign of Christ. So baptism, dying to sin, is a participation in the death and resurrection of Christ in which there is a fusion with Christ through the Spirit Which involves a different communion, a different community, a different identity, a different culture, a transformed understanding. For Nietzsche, the only hope is to break through the unreality. He talks about an eternal recurrence of the same. Only through knowing and conquering fear of the abyss, continually bumping up against that, is there the possibility of a breakthrough. For Paul, Christ's kingdom is overcoming and defeating all the dominions and powers of this world. And the latter is not preparation for that which is the former. Paul's former manner of life was not a preparation or a prompt to his faith. But he says it was deceived. It was a fleshly confidence. And so let's conclude by reading his conclusion. Look at verses 8 through 11 in chapter 3. He says, I regard it as garbage to be disposed of, that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead
0: forging plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship if you have found this podcast valuable